Hey, welcome to another edition of Culture Class Podcast, the podcast where we get to interact with people from different backgrounds, get to learn about other cultures and see what's going on in different parts of the world. My name is Nosayari and welcome to another episode. Today, I have Johnny Jenkins on the podcast. Welcome, John. Thanks for having me on the show today. Most definitely. And you are... I wouldn't say enjoying, but you're living a different life than most of us, even though this isn't the height of the pandemic anymore. Like, you know, a lot of people, a lot of businesses are starting to reopen in the city. You know, people are flying again. You know, people are somewhat getting to their normal lives, but you're pretty much like somewhere somewhere else, like in your own little world, uh, south of Denver, about 15 minutes south of Denver or so uh, in Everland. How's it out there? Yeah, it's really been a different experience for me and, and those on the property here over the last uh, you know six months and really since, since COVID set in. And we have about 145 acres surrounded by national forest. Um, it's a retreat center community that we're building, an immersive art park on uh, and glamping and event space uh, called Everland. And to be able to have so much space, especially in the in the height of COVID, when everyone was in such contraction, uh, individual, you know, isolation, and you know, not able to move around, and we just had this, you know, I, I had to make sure that you know we didn't take it for granted, and it was it's just been a beautiful gift, and you know, I kind of have been very head down. It's a, it's a big. Um, focused and a big project to be working on. So it, it consumes a lot of us. And I, I barely leave the property. I didn't leave the property for three months during COVID. Um, so it has served as, as a beautiful blessing. And uh, I would say we're enjoying it. And there's obstacles. COVID uh, has created obstacles for almost everybody in every industry. Uh, but, you know, also crisis creates opportunity and choosing to look at the bright side and very grateful for uh, the space. Yeah, most definitely. Crisis does create opportunity and you guys are, you know, fully prepared for the zombie apocalypse. You guys got any bunkers down there or something? <laughs> totally, totally got bunkers. You know, when COVID really hit, it was like, oh, we're building an event space. Well, everyone else is buying ammunition. It's like, all right, well, all right. where can we farm on the property? <laughs> you would really, I had someone offer me, like, if I brought over a lot of uh, ammunition and guns, can I stay there? I was like, we're not in doomsday <laughs> prep right now. We're um, we're still have, looking for a bright future, but preparing for the times right now too. You know, it's funny you say that because we're quick to forget. Like that first month was crazy. What was it? March, I think. Like we're running out of toilet paper. You know, uh, gun stores were essential businesses. Like it was just a crazy. Like <laughs> a lot of things, and we're still in 2020 for Christ's sake. So you have two months to go. So anyway. Yeah. We'll get into, you know, your property in Neverland and what you're doing there in a minute. But first, let me talk about the man, John. Walk me through growing up, man. Like, where did you grow up? Like, I know you've done a bit of international travel, like later in your life, but like young John as a child, how was growing up for you? Uh, where did you grow up? I grew up on a small island off the coast of North Carolina. It's called the Outer Banks. It's a little uh, sandbar. It's where they invented the airplane. And my father is just an avid surfer, so he moved there many years ago when there was, you know, not even a stoplight. And now it's grown into a big tourist destination. But I uh, had a really strong family community and grew up in the church. You know, just a like a non-denominational, spirit-filled. So everybody's uh, all my uh, my parents' best friends all got married and had kids together. So we had mm. a bunch of parents, and it was just a really beautiful island life community. And I didn't realize how you know blessed and uh, special that was um, to be so removed. We weren't worried about politics or sports. We were just it was like wind, waves, weather, wow. the beach. Um, so it was pretty isolated in that. 
that must have been an interesting childhood. Like your your dad was a surfer guy, but or was your mom the person who was in the church, or your dad, or both? Because I haven't really heard of both like surfer guys being big on church and stuff. Yeah, actually, there's a really large Christian surf community that that came up on the Outer Banks, and so he he's really deeply involved in it. And used to be a, a pastor of a Christian church, and they're both teachers. And uh, it was just you know a simple life of of beach and church. And uh, I I actually started traveling though internationally pretty young. At 14, I went to Panama. 15 to Peru. 16 to New Guinea. Spent a month wow. like deep in the Amazon. Met a tribe that had never seen white people before. They thought we were their dead ancestors that had come back from the past at 16. I, you know, I was like, oh, this is great. I uh, didn't realize it's like Nat Geo shit. Um, never, never had that experience again. But it really set me on a course of like, anything is possible. I can be an explorer, an adventurer, and do all those things. And those were like service trips or mission trips that had been for youth organizations through the church. Uh, but it kind of just let me be like, oh, I can uh, do whatever I want. Yeah, I was going to say, because most people who end up like leaving the country when they're that young, especially if you're involved in the church, happen to be, you know, like mission trips, like in the Mormon society, like they go on those trips as well. Like, but why so young? And uh, did you request for it? Or what was it like a special program to get teenagers like out there? What was that whole story that led you on going to Panama, your very first trip? Yeah, there was a youth uh, organization that did, you know, like concerts and stuff around the country and then also ran these international trips. They take 4,000 kids around the globe every summer. And so they they said, hey, you can go. And my parents are teachers. They didn't have any you know money to, to send me on an international trip. Uh, but my mom is just a believer of like, whatever you put your mind to, you can do. Um, so she helped me fundraise and I went door to door and did raffles and bake sales and, you know, raised $2,000 at 14 years old. And then I, I was, I thought, where's the best adventure? And I thought Panama sounded exotic and got to go. So you just you went know, off the name, drive. nothing else. Yeah. Yeah, totally. 14, very, very little world, uh, geograph geography or politics. Um, and this was obviously before like poverty. computers and stuff or like phones and stuff. So you can like look up Google totally. Maps or anything. Yeah, no Googling it. But really, I think the the part that was really interesting to me is going to see such a different culture so young. You know, like the little beach culture in the church. And then now you're like, okay, different worldviews and poverty and farming and tribes. And I was like, whoa, there's a lot more going on than I'm privy to. And that's really important, right? Because that's like one of the reasons I started the podcast, to be honest. Like growing up, I grew up in a military household. My dad moved around a lot, like in our home country of Nigeria. So unlike a lot of Nigerians, which is kind of like typical here in America, where someone will grow up like in a town and end up staying in that town for years, that kind of thing. Like uh, in Nigeria, it's almost the same thing. But I saw different aspects of the country. And like later in life, like having to see other people, it just gives you a certain level of exposure. And it's it's like international travel, like it's hard to explain, especially as a young person. I'll, I'll encourage everyone like who has kids listen to this, try to take your kids on one or two trips that they can, you know, even if it's to Mexico or something, just let them see a different part of the world. But what was the effect on you personally in that Panama trip? Because uh, what was your first interaction? Like you landed in Panama City first day, where did you venture to? And what was the first thing you can remember that just hit you like, wow, this is... Different. I mean, I feel like first thing that comes to my memory of uh, is like the smells even are just like, well, just everything is, you know, comes to your senses and a different in the sounds. But we were, we were going to do like dramas and plays. So we were connected to a local church group there and we got to stay in local people's homes. So, you know, like I really agree with like 
if you can take your kids on a trip internationally, please. And especially if you can take them on a service trip, you know, whatever that would be, you know, some kind of giving back rather than just a, a tourist trip where you get to go see all the pretty things. And I've, I've since been on a lot of beautiful trips where I'm like, this was not the country. I went, I went somewhere and got to experience, you know, the, the consumer uh, tourist trap. Uh, that wasn't the the reality, and that was what was so beautiful going on these trips um, at this young age was getting to go into people's homes and eat food that they cooked, and not necessarily go into the things that were curated for uh, you know Western travelers. Yeah, it's interesting you mentioned service trips because I kind of like look at that differently. Like service trips are not. Let me not say are not popular, but might not be as popular as you think, like in those countries. Like I'm African and as African kids, I remember like, you know, playing on the street or whatever. And, you know, there were a lot of some foreigners who came around like on service trips and we just look at them like, what the hell, what's up with these guys? You know, that kind of thing. And, you know, sometimes you get some people with like a savior mentality and come and, you know, they take all these yeah. pictures. We call it poverty porn kind of thing. And put it, oh, look at me. Mm-hmm. I was in Kenya, you know, helping children, that kind of thing. So um, like just a point of note for listeners, if you're going on a service trip, like act, like try to do something that real and not just, you know, as an excuse, like just venture out there or whatever, because uh, right. it, it takes a, a minute to establish that trust. And once they see that, oh, it's just uh, the locals, wherever country you are, just see it's just a, a screen or whatever, then then you lose that. You and other people have to, that kind of thing. But what, what other yeah, countries did I you think, end up? I appreciate uh, if I if I can speak to that as well. I appreciate mm-hmm. that that point, and it's been a, a conflict for me in a lot of my life, feeling back and forth, and you know later leaving the church and like looking back at doing missions, and I'm like, what was that? I don't believe in what I was trying to do, and then doing just other projects. And later in my life, I ended up uh, moving to Uganda and was uh, going to help set up a, a child sponsorship program that was to support a local outreach, but. We had the funding from these other uh, from this other community in the states. So I went to then try to understand how we would distribute to care for these children and what they need. And then there was so many programs, so many people with savior mentality, and it was a really weird taste getting there. And then also saw so much waste within those organizations. And uh, later, I wrote I read a book called Dead Aid, which is actually about um, you know specifically aid that goes into the African region and how it's, you know, very correlated to corruption and waste. And even like, oh, I'm going to bring mosquito nets. And then you put out, you know, someone, I'm going to give shoes away. Then the local cobbler isn't making it. So you actually create a big disruption. And later I wrote my, I studied international finance and I wrote my thesis about the disincentive effect of foreign aid in developing countries which is similar to the welfare effect in America. It's like, as we give money thinking we're saving, how that can actually be perpetuating the problem. Um, so I've moved away from aid work and you know, now it's my space with the Neverland is trying to create actually a, something within the capitalistic system that is creating culture and change and impact. But I think there's, there's importance and like getting out and trying to be of service. But like you're saying, really trying to understand what is needed because we show up with what we think is needed. And, you know, then it's kind of a joke. Um, and I don't really have a solid solution uh, to give people, but except to, to feel that and to, you know, take some care when you look into how to travel within that that realm. 
Yep, yep. It is a real thing. And like you said, like even with international finance, you have multilateral organizations like the World Bank, the IFC. Now they're doing more of consulting than what they did in the 90s, just dumping a bunch of money to cause more problems in the countries where where, where they, they seemingly try to help. But why international finance? Like you went on that trip when you were 14. Maybe you got into college when you were 17 or 18 a, a few years later. What made you want to study uh, a finance? Uh, that doesn't sound like something that'll be too popular, like on the surfer island uh, off the coast of North Carolina, that kind of thing. Yeah, well, I had a, a couple interesting steps to bring me to that space, but I didn't go to university after high school, but I went to this uh, Christian leadership development program that was like 600 kids living off grid in Texas that oh, wow. ran those international trips. And it so wasn't, it wasn't one of those Netflix my, documentaries, was it? Uh, I mean, we were on 60 Minutes as a cult at one point. So. Oh, my. <laughs> <laughs> Truth be told. They, I mean, they just did a lot of like, uh, you know, they were kind of militant in it of like, hey, you know, be a warrior for Christ. But in that, you know, we did like a fake boot camp that was like survival training. And, you know, that is the part that made 60 Minutes. Um, but, you know, while... I think there was some weird things going on. There was, it was called the Honor Academy and it was powerful. It's very like John Maxwell, Tony Robbins style of like conflict resolution, public speaking, personality profiling, group dynamics. And it was to like train you up before you went off to university to get your grounding in yourself or in the Lord. But for me, it was just a very, you know, um, expansive time to understand like living an intentional life. And uh, so spent, uh, I got, you know, to run a, a large team and a large budget as soon as I got there, because, you know, within 600 people doing this organization, you can get promoted easily and got to do a lot more international travel. And you know, Wait, how long was this program? It was a year program and I stayed wow. for two years. Was it co-ed? So, you know, it was co-ed, but there was no dating, no relationships. Like you can't watch outside movies. You can't listen to music. That's not, not Christian. So it was very, very regimented, but it was hyper growth. You know, a lot of times you finish high school, you go to college and then you get inundated with all these opinions in the world and you want to try this and try that. And before you know it, a year in, you're like, well, I got just fucked up and I got to get back to my center. So this is to like build your center strong before you go out into the world. Um, and so... But my, my thought I would always be in business and like real estate uh, and then use that to kind of help do missions or something. Um, and so there was a real estate developer who came to the program and he had wanted to mentor someone. Um, has an 800 person development company. So then chose me to go move to Pittsburgh with him. And then I spent the next year one-on-one, -on -one, no friends, like finance, strategy, negotiation, like planning, permit. And it was, it was that's real life experience. That's even, that's even more valuable than what they teach in school because school is a lot of classroom stuff. Yeah. And not things you can apply often. Um, yeah. Later, I, I, I got hired by another developer, still didn't have my degree. Um, and we were building a big project. And there was guys getting their master's in real estate development who interned under me. And I definitely didn't tell them I didn't have a degree. <laughs> they were going to a prestigious university. And I was like, this is weird. Uh, and it was like the dream. <laughs> and you were like, what, 18 or something? Well, by now I was uh, 21. Uh, so I was there 21 to 23 working for this, this next developer. And what I thought, you know, on paper was the dream scenario and set for life. I just was unhappy and bored. And everyone that I worked with had children that were older than me. And it was just like, it was like a bunch of old white guys who do real estate development. It's very old, traditional, big brother, you know, big boys club. and. I was like, I'm not living a life of purpose and intention. I'm not doing anything. I'm just like into the system and way, I got way too much energy and curiosity. So that's when I quit and moved to Uganda. 
Um, and then after, you know, half a year there, started traveling more Central, South America, just adventure travel. And through that time, letting go of like my rigid Christianity, as I continued to discover all these cultures, I'm like, I, I can't tell them that, that this is the only way. There's tons of ways to find love and light and alignment and Christianity is a contextualization that was that really ministered to me. And Wait, so was it gradual? Did you get to that like state gradually or you had like an experience? And how was that conversation with your parents? Like, hey, I don't think this is working for me anymore as a religion. Yeah, good question. Um, it was gradual. Um, a lot of study and philosophical debating with friends of like, can a loving God send people to hell? Like, do all these things actually feel true to me? And, and then going to all these countries and interacting with people that have their faith and are loving, beautiful people and being like, you're going to hell unless you change. It just, I don't, I can't believe this. And so enough of that allowed it to crumble. But I think a big key for me was being abroad because all of my community was Christian. And so even if I wanted to not be Christian, I, all of my friends and family, and so that was just like, you're doing wrong if you question to be outside of it. So when I finally was just traveling by myself, I was able to just feel into what really felt right. And to answer about the questions, uh, my mom took it pretty good. Um, my dad didn't take it really great. We don't talk about it too much. Please don't send him this podcast. <laughs> uh, <we talk laughs> Even till now. <laughs> How many siblings yeah, do you have? I have one older sister. We're very close. Are, are you the only one who backslid out of the two of you? Yeah, yeah. Yeah, she's still Christian too. Got it. I mean, I hear, I mean, sometimes, you know, it's 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 interesting being a, I'm not a parent and I don't know if you are, but the older I get, because there are a lot of things, you know, our parents try to teach us because they felt like that was the best way. Maybe they've seen life a certain way and they're trying to protect us or prepare us for something. And, you know, when I was younger, my teenagers, I never thought like, why? This doesn't make any sense. You know, a lot of things that might be, you know, religion or certain way of doing things it can be a whole bunch of stuff but as i get older i find myself falling into that same trap with some of my younger sisters because i did something and it worked for me i want them to follow that same oh, oh you know what when you go to school this is what you need to do you need to join this club you need to go there but that club might have been the the ish 15 years ago but you know now it's like no that's like what are you talking about like so maybe in a way we get stuck at a certain age as we just get older we just get stuck at the age of 25 okay that's what it is so anyone that's under 25 i'll try to make him or her the best 25 year old version of me like if that makes any sense like it's as i get older it's starting to like i kind of like understanding now oh okay this is what they're trying to do. i try to look more at the intent part of it uh, but some of our parents can just be stubborn man with the way like you concede a little bit but they never concede I'm older, you have to do it this way, this way. Well, let, let's talk about some of your other trips. Like, how many countries would you say you've been to in total? And what were some of your most memorable experiences uh, from one or two of those countries uh, over time? I've been to around 60 countries. Wow. Um, Wait, how many countries are on the globe? <laughs> I'm just kidding. Question, I'm not sure. <laughs> I think like 300 uh, How or many something. countries are, yeah, so hundreds. Um, 60, I, wow. One, I think one of my most... Exciting trips is the the day I turned 21. I got on a um, in the Caribbean. I got on a 49 foot catamaran, and with three other people, I sailed across the Atlantic Ocean into the Mediterranean Sea and spent like a month in the open water. And for context, a catamaran is just like a it's like a raft, sailboat. no, like a small sailboat with two with two holes. 
So it's a little more stable. Wow. Um, and you went on the Atlantic? Yeah, all the way across it. Some big storms and some big, big oceans. <laughs> that must have taken like a couple of weeks. Yeah, it was exactly. It was, it was about a month trip. Uh, and then we went into the Mediterranean and then we had bikes on board. So we docked the boat and then I got off on bikes and rode across France and then Spain and then ran with the bulls in Spain and then like did a couple of stages of the Tour de France and then went to do some alpineering, glacier climbing back in France and vineyards and castles and just like really, you know, we went on probably cost like a thousand dollars for the trip because i didn't pay for any transportation you know there was i didn't take any trains or taxis i biked everywhere and we cooked our own food and we slept in hammocks and we slept in tents you know so it was really bikes like, like bicycles or like motorbikes Bi bicycles bicycles wow wow <laughs> that sounds that's something i haven't done because my own version of travel i haven't done the backpacking travel just yet i go to a city it's most likely most times a city like i can venture out into the upper lands sometimes while i stay like in a hotel or hostel or something then venture out i haven't done like Back, true backpacking, live by the land kind of traveling. And that, that's just something different. Even with my supposed military training, I haven't gotten to that point yet. Like, is it, what do you think? Was it just a curiosity, the, the, the need for adventure or like what, what drove you to like go on trips like that? Cause that might be considered extreme by certain people, even though those are the best kinds of trips. Definitely extreme. And a lot of my trips have been extreme. And I'm a bit of an extreme person, uh, but I, like you say, it's just my, I have an insatiable curiosity. I'm like, well, what if I do this or touch that button or talk to this person? And, you know, it brings so much excitement and joy and intrigue into my life. Um, and the backpacking lifestyle specifically is really interesting because you meet so many other people traveling on a shoestring budget. And you kind of like intersect with them and hostels or wherever. And then they tell you the little secret adventures they just had. And you kind of like sniff out uh, where you're going to go. So it's like the bond. You know, you know what? I agree. Because, you know, the, the, when I was in Ghana, we went to this place called Lee. It's like supposed, supposed to be like the tallest waterfall in West Africa. And it's this little village. And there were all these backpackers there. And like, it was so cool. Like the, that one or two days that we spent, like just bond and everything, you know, everyone was kind of like on a shoestring budget and everything. And I still text them to today, like two years later, like, hey, what's up, man? Like, where are you? Like, you're just in different countries here and there. Like, I'm more like travel once or twice a year. Well, a couple of people like you go to like eight eight countries a year or something like um so when when it took you time to go to all these countries you eventually came back to the u.s there's that point of realization right that oh you know when i watched the jobs movie steve jobs when he went to india there was like some point of realization that i wanted to come back to the u.s to do something is that a real thing did you have that or it was just something more like hey you know you kind of like ran out of money you had to come home or something like what was it for you did you come back with a plan or you just like thought that it was time to kind of like end the sojourn and like come back home yeah, once I left for Uganda, um, I pretty much lived abroad for the next eight years. Um, but I would come home almost every summer for three months, you know, and would go back to the island and wait tables at a fine dining restaurant and save, you know, $10,000 work, you know, 100 hours a week, don't sleep, but then I wouldn't have to do anything for the next year. And I just would travel really cheap and kind of go one space the next. And that was for the first part of the travels. And then um, to answer your question earlier about about finance, I was kind of after two years of just wanderlust and adventure was feeling the need to try to go to at least get towards having my degree. So when I am ready to work again, 
um, and then had the discovery that I didn't have to go to school in America. So I wanted to learn Chinese. So I went to Taiwan um, and I wow. learned numbers and math. Finance was an easy, um, an easy um, path for me to choose within that. Um, and then bunkered down in, in Taiwan for the next, you know, four years to study Chinese and, and study finance at an international school there. And it was a really international school. I had a lot of uh, classmates from Nigeria, from, you know, not a lot of American classmates. And specifically, Taiwan has a really great program where, you know, Taiwan and China kind of fight. Is Taiwan a country or not? China says no. If some of these smaller countries recognize Taiwan and give them the political nod, Taiwan will give their youth uh, free education. So you'll have all, you know, there's like this this program where we had like people from like Santamin Prisby and like places that you don't hear about much in Africa that I'm like, well, I got like 10 friends from Santamin Prisby. What's going on here? Um, so it was a really uh, multinational uh, school. Um, and uh, then I stayed there for four, five years and started an events and production company, started, started throwing parties and then things just got in out of control. Taiwan? So in Taiwan, yeah, I was throwing a thousand person event every Friday night wow. uh, at minimum. Wait, were these clubs or were like event centers or like? Yeah, it was, it was the, the oldest and biggest club in, in Taiwan and they had recruited me in and I said, Okay, got to hire a bunch of my friends and play. <laughs> nice. And then I also started acting and modeling. So between those two things, they just both, you know, replicated each other and supported it. And so it, it kept me there for a long time and gave me a good way of life. Um, but it was, I mean, for me coming home, there was kind of a couple major events, but one was going to Burning Man um, about eight years ago, which has been a big inspiration for Everland, what I'm, I'm building now. And to see, you know, I left America because I was like, done with capitalism and greed and just push to be the bigger you like you all these other countries and, <laughs> yeah well they'll understand the system and you know that's been a real part of like okay our, our financial system's fucked and how can i operate within it when that is the way that everything is organized under um but i didn't want to go back to it there i wanted to live a, a creative and an interesting life and um, so seeing Burning Man was like my first, you know, witnessing of a big community that wasn't around religion or politics or sports. It was just like, hey, we're here to play and have fun and help each other and serve. And so I started getting really involved in the Burning Man community in Taiwan and then had a really bad motorcycle wreck. And I launched uh, an R1 three stories off a bridge. And that was that was a pattern disruption, to say the least. And I should be dead. Or paralyzed, but I landed in a foot and a half of water and it saved my life. Um, but I couldn't walk for months, was in the hospital for weeks. And like through that recovery, it was like, is this what you're going to continue to do? Throw parties and shoot commercials? Like just get to be bigger parties and bigger commercials. I like had seen that path out and could also see what it was doing to me with like, okay, I'm on stage and let's give shots. And it, it was just a very egoic um, egoic existence. Um, and that recovery, you know, I had the vision to come back to America where I can speak the language fluent, you know, perfectly like there, I can communicate like a five-year-old. Uh, and, but I was known, you know, not because of my words or my thoughts, or my deeds, but because uh, I throw parties the or they parties. saw me on the billboard. Mm. Uh, knew I had a bigger, uh, bigger gift to the world um, or just something that felt more aligned with my purpose and um, had a dream of uh, actually took ayahuasca. And in that um, ceremony coming out of that, saw this like real estate 
which I would laugh because, oh, real estate's extractionary, but real estate's also the building block of life. We all live in places. We all work in places. It doesn't have to be about greed and corruption. It can be the container that brings people together. And so Saul, to go back, to go back into real estate, but with the intention of going to be a space for community and creativity. And so with that call is when I came back to America, you know, five and a half years ago uh, and intended to do a project like this, but, you know, wasn't prepared yet and didn't have the community or the finances and just got back in working and building community. And, you know, but I'll, I'll pause there because that's the answer to about why did I come come home? Yeah, it's pretty, it's pretty interesting you say that because using real estate as a tool and it's just all about perspective, right? Like anything you use can be a tool. Like you tended to see real estate as a tool to build community as against a capitalist tool to kind of like always be for profit and whatnot and whatnot. So whatever you have can be a tool. It can be a podcast, it can be whatever. It can be a tool to achieve that innate thing that you want to see in the world. But let me ask you like, first, let me ask you about the name, like, I always like anytime I think about it, I think of Neverland for some reason, but it's ever. But how did you come up with the name? Let's start from there. Well, yeah, it was a Freudian slip and I was on the way to the Burning Man a couple of years ago and we had climbed up a tree and we were smoking a joint in Salt Lake City on a bunch of different branches and listening to some music. We're like, what if we had a DJ up in the tree? Oh, you were road tripping to Burning Man? Yeah, on the way there. Interesting, interesting. We start dreaming about this treehouse stuff that we always talk about with my with these friends, Boombox and Lauren. And I was like, Oh, it'll be it'll be just like Everland. I was like, Oh, I mean Neverland. Actually, oh. <laughs> Neverland. <laughs> so it's an accident. But Neverland, nice. Neverland is like some limitation. It's a, it's a negation. And Everland is the place of infinite possibility and exploration. I like it. Infinite possibilities. I ever, ever. It's there forever and ever. And Burning Man, just for context of some of our listeners that might be listening from other countries, it's this festival, kind of like festival-like thing in the desert. I think it's in Nevada somewhere. And it's held every year. A lot of tech people go there, Elon Musk and all these people. And everywhere, it's like so organized, so free. People share, you know, resources. They enjoy music, you know, share happiness, joy, that kind of thing. I don't know if I'm explaining it right. I've never been, but just off the images I've seen, I I want to go someday, but we'll see how that goes. Now, here's a question. Level, But if I want to just speak to Burning Man for just a second more for the listeners, it, it is of, of every every place I've gone in my life experiences, I'm an experienced junkie. Burning Man is by far the most intriguing and random generated machine. You mm-hmm. don't know what's going to come out of it. You have 80,000 people for eight days off grid. You build a city and there's no money. There's no way you can buy anything. You're just supposed to make other people happy with the way that you show up and offer your gifts. So it's, it's like you're in another dimension and you forget the world while you're there and it just really calls up. And there's, you know, old people, young people, people from all over the world. It's a very diverse mix of people. And, you know, it's not going to happen. didn't happen this year. Probably won't happen next year. When it does happen, again, I highly recommend. Yep, yep. And he's serious when he says build a city. Like it's literally a desert, empty, open land. And a city is built. And when they leave, there's not one drop of litter. It's like everything is packed up cleared up how they do it i don't know but 
That might be an interesting case study someday. Okay, so you're this guy who's back after, you know, four years in Taiwan. You've been, you know, living abroad for a while. Come back to the U.S., you have this epiphany. You want to, like, have this community, this large space, this resort-like giant property. How do you go about even achieving? Because I, no matter where it, where it is, even if it's in the North Pole somewhere, I would imagine 140 acres costs you a pretty penny. Like, what was the steps? Like, let's talk a little business now. What was the steps you took into, like, acquiring the property and even start to develop that kind of thing? Great. Yeah, that's uh, something that um, gave me um, purpose to enter back into the business and real estate and finance world with knowing that it's going to be really helpful for me to understand how I can put something like this together. Now, a lot of people have dreams of community living together and eco-villages living off the land. Um, and we need a holistic community to run all the different little aspects of it, but um, really needing to kind of go from the top-down approach to understand zoning, financing, permitting, planning, all these really difficult things that unless you're studying in it, it, it's an uphill battle. And I was grateful to be in the business and be able to find real estate that others find. And it was several years ago, it came on and off the market, tracked down the owners that were How did you find it? Like, where did you, I don't like, this can be listed on Zillow, can it? Like, how did you even go about finding this? It, it, It went on market for a moment after the owner died five years ago. And then went off market because their tenant got under contract and went to buy it. But the tenant then wasn't capable of buying and squatted on the land and then went to court. So this goes on for years. And And this is the whole property. It's not like you bought different properties and combined it. This is one. One property. Interesting. 140 acres. So it was a Korean Christian missionary training camp. And there's um, multiple homes and tiny cabins and a big retreat center and ponds and streams and rocks and amphitheater. It's really developed property, very rare of a gym, especially so accessible to Denver. And so I had met one of the brokers who had worked for the company that used to represent it and he didn't anymore, but he worked with them and gave me the email of the owner. And then through that, I got his phone number. And just for years, I kept texting and calling and messaging and for years, years. Interesting. What was the asking price? Just out of curiosity. I would rather not say, but way less than I would have imagined because a it was church property and just you know a unique place that was kind of hard for people to buy, and we we got it for a really incredible deal, really under value. But I still didn't. Was have it in the millions at least? Yeah, it was uh, it was over a million for sure. But you know, you would think the property could like this could be six million, and it was you know way more on the the less side. But what was so interesting, you know, so we got it for about a million dollars under the assessed value, under what you know it was worth. And how do you do that? You know, Negotiation? So, I, some negotiation. Just, I mean, I, I stayed persistent. I shared the vision. I shared the heart, expressed it. And over that time, they're like, a lot of people have wanted this property, but you, your heart and your consistency, if you can do the deal with us, good. We won't tell anybody else that's on the market. And so I then tied it up immediately with a, the support from a mentor with an assignable contract. So then I was able to assign it to somebody else that saw the value in the land and saw the equity that was built in because there was extra value in it more than the cost of it. So they said, hey, I have low risk. If he messes up, then I'll take it myself. So then I got a a long-term lease with an option to buy it back. So I didn't have to put the cash up front to buy it. I had somebody else buy it and I kept control of it. Okay, let me see. So 
explain what an assignable contract is. Is it exactly as it sounds like an assignable contract? You assign contract to someone else. So who owns the property legally within that time frame? Well, when you just have it under contract, it's owned by the regular, but you have, you know, just like if you were buying a house, I could give you an offer and say, look, I'm going to buy your house for 500000 or somebody else will under the same term. Most homeowners won't do it, but in some situations, you'll have people say yes to that. Um, and that's a big, that's another industry in, in business and real estate where just houses, people try to find a good deal and then sell the contract to someone else to never actually even close on the property. Um, so it, get, it gave me time to find a right partner. And now I'm structuring and raising the group to buy it back from the current owner long term. Um, and she gave me three years to get everything together. Now we've had a year and built a name and a brand, but then operate Everland leases the land. So and, and now, you know, before it was just a pipe dream and I'm telling people about Everland, like, cool, that sounds awesome and go for it, you know? And I'm like, okay, I'm going to. <laughs> and now we've had a year of traction and we've built things out and we've raised initial capital. So it's a whole different situation now that I'm trying to buy out the land with, gave me the time. Got it. And what is your vision for Everland? What do you see that piece of property becoming in the near future? Yeah, Everland is really meant to be a place um, for us to like delight in our collective imagination to create this like playground. You know, if we were if you were a 12 year old building a treehouse with an architect and an infinite budget and your imagination could run wild, like what would you create? And, you know, I've always been into tree houses and weird things and, you know, the story that can unfold. So the art and the interactive component is, is really big for Everland. So it's going to be multiple businesses within one, the retreat center, people can understand and the campground or the glamping, which is tiny cabins and nice tents. But the art park is the more unfamiliar business. And that's more like almost like a theme park. You know, it's like an art museum meets the botanical gardens. And this is the part that really makes something unique rather than just, hey, we're a place out in the woods doing retreats. It's going to be, you know, collaboratively created, just like Burning Man or Meow Wolf. There'll be many different artists. And in fact, there's three different artist groups on the property right now building art. And, and these are, when you say artist all, groups, so I, I imagine these are like giant sculptures, not just like small art, or it's a mix of both. It's it's a variety. There, There's uh, Tigre Bailando is a, um, you know, a person of color, non-binary. They are building with their crew these large bears that are actually, they're baby cub bears. They're seven foot tall. And we're getting the structural engineering and permitting to get the 20-foot bear. That'll be the mother that'll be created in the spring. Uh, and then we have Art Zeiss, who uh, is creating art, who's an artist, is made, made this teardrop, teardrop out of fallen wood. Uh, and then Selva is an Italian artist and the founder of Cosmic Convergent, and her team is building a nature labyrinth in Mandala, all out of materials found on the property, and they're weaving these large animals that'll be kind of figures, storybook figures around uh, the labyrinth. So a lot of things with story and meaning behind the art. Um, and the art park is laid out in a, uh, a template in order to allow a lot of people to make different types of art. So because we want the complexity, we want the diversity of the, of the ways of, of the creation modalities, but that could also be very chaotic and just like, well, there's a lot of random shit. Um, so the story is super important. And for us, we were inspired by Bill Plotkin, who's a famous nature-based therapist, founded the Animus Valley 
And he laid out uh, the journey of the human archetypes around a compass. And the compass is our, our logo. It's a symbol for exploration and discovery. So the center of the park will be a big compass village, dystopian uh, Peter Pan type village. And then each of the trails will explore an archetype, like childlike play and the trickster energy. The South is the craftsman, the creator. The West is the visionary and the champion. And the North is wisdom and elders. And then three zones, Earth, Sky, and Inward. Earth is an ode to Pachamama, an ode to our planet. That's where Selva is making the nature labyrinth. Sky is like ancient future, the multiverse. Uh, and then inner is the inner resonance, like our breath and our heartbeat that unite us all as people. And that's going to be a sound shrine in a large scale interact instrument that you can go inside and all the walls will be made from deconstructed piano innard and the strings tuned to the frequency of the earth and the ceiling as a wind harp. So, you know, pretty weird. And, Dude, uh, I, see, is, I see you haven't put any thought ball. into this at all. <laughs> <laughs> Wow. Wow. Like so having passion. Trails, the artists can then choose what trail their artists. And then we're not telling the story as Everland. But is but this going to be built? Like, are you going to leave? I'm sorry to cut you short. Like, are you going to leave some of those trails open to future generations to build out? Or you're going to build everything in this life? Because what I'm Great hearing question. is like, everything has a theme. But have you mapped out? everything or you're kind of like leaving no. some space okay no because there, there's so much that this this story is meant to be told collective you know it's not hey i got a plan who's gonna build my shit it's like okay here's what we've been talking about as a community for a long time and now this is the template but the story of the archetypes the story of the child or the elder is going to be told a million different ways by a million different people and so allowing that you know we're not we got 145 acres we got a lot of room and we're not trying to fill it up super fast and there's the big pieces that will get some anchor pieces but then even there's the, the laser cut signs like plaques and poetry and messages and questions and small art that you know you you then as an experiencer might come and you're like well i'm really inspired by the visionary the champion and my you know the way that i want to show art to this and then you can put in a proposal to have your art be you know to live either short term or long term on everland and collectively tell the story together wow that's pretty that's pretty interesting and inspiring like it's not just like cat skills or one of those resorts where people can go there's actually an attraction to bring people to that resource. So I even see, depending on how big this thing gets, like, and it's funny because you're in the perfect state for that. Like Colorado is kind of like, <laughs> you know, kind of it. But depending on how big it gets, you know, the local government or even the state government can get involved if it's bringing a lot of people to the to the site. Where's the closest airport to that? Is it still DIA or is one of those airports, uh, yeah. other airports? Soon? DIA is one hour away. It's great. Super, super convenient. Okay, perfect, perfect. Okay, I know I will be doing a holiday. Like my girlfriend, if you listen to this, says, and I, you know, where we're going in December, right? Okay, I'm just, I'm just putting this out there. <laughs> wow, what do you like? We've talked about your project with Everland. We've covered a little bit about your background. Like, what do you want to do? Like, is this your, leg your legacy? Is this the last frontier? Like, this community you kind of want to build and be remembered for? Or is there something else you want to do, like, as Johnny Jenkins? And yeah, this is definitely the legacy project. Um, and even to your question, you're like, are you going to build it all out? What's going to be here later? Like, we're building this to be here for generations to come, not... A summer, you know, and, and while COVID has been a curveball and a lot to navigate, you know, if we're just an event, then we might be done. 
Um, but we are trying to lay the foundation for something that our grandchildren can experience and play in. Um, but I am an, an innovator and a creator and an imaginer. And, you know, once this becomes a stabilized operating vessel, I'm probably not the best leadership to manage the day-to-day operations of the logistics department. You don't care much um, about the operation part. Yeah, what once once we're like a stabilized asset, then we'll probably be looking at building the next ones, you know, down in Costa Rica or on the beaches. And I've already had offers of land that I'm like, I am just starting here and thanks for the excitement, but I gotta focus where I am for now. Wow. Wow. This is pretty interesting stuff. Pretty interesting stuff. And what do you like with with Everland? Are you gonna have like a Burning Man type event, like a yearly thing over there okay okay yeah, we are right now in the in the zoning that we're uh we, we, we're zoned as a cultural facility which is a place for intellectual and artistic expression um and you know we will have gatherings of certain sizes but you know we're saying our gatherings will be you know below 300 people for the most part uh we have space to have larger events but that would be down the road to have a you know a several hundred person event already is as large you know and i think in a post-covid world it's a Appropriate because we're looking to return more to intimacy and to smaller gatherings and the 30,000 people at a big festival while is exciting, you don't need all those people there to have that that deep experience. So, you know, we want to make sure we lay the proper groundwork uh, with the community, with our neighbors. And, you know, as we try to grow, like there's one property, it's all national forest, except for one Christian camp next to us. And they do a, they only do one event a year, one week, and it's a 1500 kid youth camp. Um, so there's precedent in the area to do larger things, um, but it's not on our immediate agenda. But for me as a burner and as an event producer, I definitely love to create you know, immersive, deep experiences. And we'll be very excited when that is you know, in alignment for Everland. Well, whenever that is, you know, we hope to be part of it. You know, as a podcast here, a cultural class podcast, you know, hopefully we can follow your progress and, you know, refer back to this episode, you know, four years from now, five years from now. Say, remember when, you know, you had long hair and you were trying to do this thing? <laughs> you know, that kind of thing. <laughs> <laughs> but man, thanks, John, for, for being on the podcast. I like to give my guests like, you know, a couple of minutes at the end of the episode. Like if there was a question uh, you were meaning me to ask that I didn't, or something you want to speak on, if you want to talk to your your future self kind of like document a few things or if you just want to throw out your website social media tell people what's coming uh you kind of have to. thank you uh, thanks for giving me the space to uh to you know drop in with you on this call um and it's uh it's a really exciting thing to be focused so deeply on everland and again at a time when a lot of our other creative projects were taken from us you know a lot of artists lost the ability to have their art at the festival or the event or whatever it is and you know through the covid crisis again, has created this opportunity. And, and we're really blessed to see how much the community has come around to support, you know, the, the artist community. Uh, the We also have a, a sister organization, a nonprofit called the Sanctuary of the Inner Compass. So sanctuary, the sanctuary of the Inner is Compass. a place of refuge. So the sanctuary is a safe place. And the inner compass is your inner truth and your inner guidance. And it's a, you know, spiritual, non-affiliated organization that 
runs the church that we purchased um, and runs the retreat center. And that is the arm that gives back to the community and has the like the grounded heart in it. And that's collectively created by a number of members within the sanctuary of the Inner Compass. Uh, through that, we have a lot of volunteer days and people contributing different uh, skill sets or materials. People are calling us up, hey, do you need old lumber or do you need an, an old eight, an old pickup truck? And we're like, yep, it takes a lot to do this. And you'd be You'd be surprised, you know, the amount of energy that 145 acre takes when you can't even show anything for that energy. You're like, well, I've been doing X, Y, Z. And, uh, you know, you don't have a product for so much of, you know, it's like the iceberg. So much of it is underwater and just, you know, just want to express my gratitude um, for all those that are showing up. Um, It's really humbling. And this would not happen without community around it. You would fail immediately. There's no big pockets behind us and, you know, someone bankrolling in. Just, it's like, we're doing this super grassroots and step-by-step. And, you know, we launched a Kickstarter this summer and our goal was $88,888. And we raised it in 77 hours. And what's we the, what's, was, uh, what's the significance of the eight? It is the infinite sign five oh, times. Oh, <laughs> got it, got it, got it. Got it. with some synchronicity. Getting fun. Got it. Got it. Got um, it. So it was really powerful to watch that Kickstarter and to see how many people started telling the story and sharing the message. And you know, there's so many different ways to get involved. Just like this is as you give me space to to share about Everland from a you know a, just a sharing people sharing on on Facebook to other people about wow this is pretty cool and exciting connects people into the community that then come out to create to give some art to to make something and you know it is something that will be a, a collective movement and a collective project the entire time and i'd say that that's probably my biggest focus um leading this charge is to, to not have it in this like for-profit corporate you know we're disney world and also you know experiencing the nonprofit space where it's like well you just have to ask for help for forever and you then you're like if you don't if you don't have that help in the future you can't exist and so really trying to blend those things together and be a place of service for the community but to be getting to a point of financial viability and sustainability that can fund the best Best art and the best events and workshops, and that's my north star is is blending those things and you know stepping into that that new paradigm business that I believe in 2020 we've all been called to even so much more. I mean, doing this podcast is like create in a way that you know brings us to be more connected to 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 whatever it is that we feel a place in our heart to do. You know, having this big physical space of Everland has been great because people are able to find their little modes and the you know modalities to to offer service uh, to others. But it's uh, it's a great joy to to get to interact with so many different people that are just you know doing something of service and for other people. And we'll put in the the website is everland.co, which is like dot Colorado. Um, the Facebook is everlandco. The Instagram is everlandco. Um, so give us a share and follow us and check it out. And thanks thanks for the time. Yeah, most definitely. And when I think back to that fourteen year old boy trying to raise two thousand dollars with cupcake. Like, I have no doubt in my mind that you're going to achieve, you know, what you set out to just, you know, by your shared determination and everything. And like I said, we'll be with you every step of the way. We wish you well on your journey as you continue to build Everland. Maybe we'll na- name this episode Finding Everland. I don't know. What do you think about that? 
I don't know. <laughs> I like it. <laughs> we'll see. We'll see. All right, guys. It's been another episode of Culture Class Podcast. As usual, follow us on all social medias, Culture Class Podcast everywhere. Check out our website, cultureclasspodcast.com. Send us an email, cultureclasspodcast at gmail.com. Tell us what you think. And until next time, be well.